morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and we welcome you to our Pastor's Bible Class. Welcome all who are here in our gymnasium, and also all who are joining us in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM, and those who are joining us online at KFUO.org, welcome. We're glad you're here with us. We're going to, on this first Sunday in Advent, be looking at the lessons for the second Sunday in Advent, so for next week, and we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. We'll be looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14, and Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. But before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, in this the first Sunday of Advent, we look forward with anticipation to your Son's coming into our lives. We thank and praise you that he came originally in all meekness and humility in, as his birth to Mary and to Joseph. We thank you for the fact that he comes to us continually through the sacrament of his supper with his body and blood and the forgiveness of sin for us. And we look forward with great anticipation to his coming once again in all triumph and glory to judge between the living and the dead. We thank you also for your word. As we study that word, we pray your Holy Spirit will guide us so that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of that word and especially also how it applies to our daily lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are, as I indicated in the prayer, this is the first Sunday in Advent. And uh, Advent, of course, is a word that means come or coming. And in Advent, we look at really three ways, as I indicated again in the prayer, that uh, Christ comes to us. First of all, we look back historically at his coming, uh, his original incarnation here to Mary and to Joseph in great meekness and humility. Again, we look at his present day coming to us in his supper with his uh, body and blood and the forgiveness of sin. And we also anticipate his coming uh, on a day that has already been set when he will come, not in meekness and humility as he came the first time, but in all power and glory to judge between the living and the dead. So this is a special time of preparation. It's a time of, uh, historically, a time of repentance for us, and that's what we'll look at in the, uh, in the lessons for this day. Uh, we think of, in the season of Advent, uh, that it is, of course, our sin and our need for redemption that brings Christ into this world. And it's not traditionally as penitential as Lent is, but it is, nonetheless, somewhat uh, repentant. Uh, I've got an object lesson in front of me that I wasn't expecting to have. We've got an Advent wreath here. Uh, and just, again, the four candles on the outside for the four Sundays in Advent. Uh, many churches still have the violet candles, uh, the uh, color, again, of penitence, uh, similar to Lent. Uh, we and a lot of other churches have gone to the blue. That was introduced, I think, back in the 1960s, and I'm, I'm thinking it was... I've, Pretty sure, remember, it was the Roman Catholic Church that actually brought that innovation in. And I think the idea was blue is the color of hope, usually. And so the idea was let's not be so penitential as, as we are in Lent. Let's have a little more uh, uh, attitude of, of, of focus of hope. Um, then you've got the pink candle is, is lighted on the third Sunday in Advent, and that is the uh, candle of 
joy or rejoicing. It is called Gaudete Sunday, from the Latin for rejoice. And the epistle lesson on that day is from Philippians chapter 4, where Paul talks about rejoice, and again I say it, rejoice, and so on. So that's the theme. And then, of course, the Christ candle in the center. Uh, we light uh, when we have the reading that Christ is, in fact, born. And uh, so, and the idea of the, the candelabra, the candles, again, increasing light as we, as we get closer to Christmas, and the idea of Christ, the light of the world coming. The circular uh, nature of it reminds us of eternal life. A circle has no beginning, no end. The greenery also, uh, down here on the bottom, reminds us of life. And the berries here, the red berries, remind us again of the blood of Jesus, that he is born with one purpose in mind, and that is to, to be our Savior, to give his life and shed his blood for us. So just some of the symbolism that we see in Advent, and it's... Um, just again kind of helps us uh, remember those sorts of things during Advent. Let's take a look then uh, with that introduction. Let's take a look at Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11 and uh, you'll notice here that just maybe to set this up a little bit um, God's people are going to be taken away. We believe that by this time in the book of Isaiah the northern uh, kingdom has already been taken away by Assyria. God raised up the Assyrians to bring judgment upon his people as a result of their idolatry and just basically turning away from God, uh, just going through the motions, you might speak, uh, just going through the routine, but also worshiping false gods as well. And um, this point now, the, the, uh, Isaiah is talking uh, concerning a new exodus that is going to happen, that God is going to bring his people back, uh, not this time from Egypt, but this time from Babylon. And it's kind of interesting that the previous chapter ends, chapter 39 ends, with King Hezekiah, uh, Isaiah talking to King Hezekiah and assuring Hezekiah that Babylon is going to come and is going to take over, is going to, is going to bring judgment on the south now. Hezekiah is a king of the south. Uh, Hezekiah, not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, uh, he brought the Babylonian envoys down and was hoping that they would, that Babylon would be a sort of a partner, an ally with him against the Assyrians. And what does Hezekiah do but open up all of his treasures and show the, the envoys from Babylon all of the gold and all, all that he had. And, you know, what in the world are you thinking? Because they're, gonna, they're eventually going to come and, and take them over. He's almost inviting them to come and take them over. And let me just read for you the last, uh, Isaiah 39, if you have a Bible, you can follow along, uh, verses 5 through 7, just the end, or 5 through 8. The end of the previous chapter. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. Now listen to the response from Hezekiah. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. 
For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Can you think of anything more selfish than that? In other words, he's, he's been told by Isaiah that Babylon is going to come, is going to ransack them, is going to carry off everything that they have, and his sons are going to be taken away as well. And he says, oh, good, that's fine. The word of the Lord is good. And because I guess it won't happen during my time, it won't happen you know, under my watch, and it, it, it did take about 100 more years for it to happen. But, you know, thinking, you know, a ruler who has, it would seem on the surface, is only caring about his own uh, legacy and the fact that he won't have to deal with this at all. It'll be, you know, we have the expression, kick the can down the road. It'll be somebody else, and it's going to be his sons. Um, and, you know, finally, uh, King Zedekiah is going to be the one ruling when Babylon finally takes over. And you can read about this in Second Kings, but... He, he uh, is taken captive. They make a run for it. He's taken captive. And the last thing he sees are his sons being killed right before his eyes. And then his own eyes are gouged out. He's blinded and, and carted off to Babylon. So that's, a, that's a, one of the most uh, sad and tragic things, obviously, in the scriptures. But now here's the set. That's the setup. It's kind of a... <laughs> uh, and now we have this beautiful Isaiah 40 of God speaking again of a great comfort to his people and the fact that he is going to bring them back. There is going to be uh, a new exodus, so to speak, and God is going to, um, going to bring his people back and deliver his people. It will be done, by the way. God will accomplish this. Uh, King Cyrus, the Persians, will defeat the Babylonians, and God's people will be allowed to come back. We think also ultimately that this is, is um, fulfilled in Christ who comes to liberate all of us from our, from our sin and our, our captivity uh, to sin, death, and the grave. All right, let's go on. Verse, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These first two verses are, again, one of the, a couple of the most uh, beautiful and comforting uh, in all of Scripture. Notice at the beginning there that word comfort, comfort is repeated for emphasis, and Hebrew does that. Uh, anytime you see something repeated, the Psalms do this a lot, David and other psalmists do this a lot. The emphasis is on, obviously, the comfort here. And notice the use of my people, says your God. In, in the Old Testament, whenever God uses the personal pronouns, the possessive pronouns, my people, uh, instead of those people or a people, it's again always comforting. It's, it's God, God saying again that you and I are back together once again. Uh, speak tenderly uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, in other words, the people who are in exile right now. Speak tenderly to them. Uh, so not in judgment, but in comfort. And cry to her that her... Now, the, the, uh, many times in the Old Testament, the pronouns for cities are feminine. So that's crying to her, to Jerusalem, that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity or her sin 
is pardoned, and the punishment for that is going to be paid, yet to be paid by Christ, that she has received. Now, here's, this is sometimes misunderstood. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Some people take that to mean that she has received double punishment for her sins. In other words, her sins are five, and she's received ten. Uh, God's people receive ten. Actually, we didn't see the other way around. That she has received double grace in proportion to her sins. So, for example, if her sins are five, the blessings that she is receiving are a ten. And that's usually the way we interpret that. In other words, it's not she's received double punishment, she's received double blessing as a result of her sins, or in proportion to her sins, I should say. Okay? Uh, now, a voice cries. Who is this voice? A voice cries. Um, we think the setting for Isaiah 40 is either Isaiah 6, which is Isaiah's call. That's when he is taken up into the, into the heavenly realms. Uh, it's either that or it is a meeting of the prophets. We don't know for sure, but it might be one of either of those. A voice cries. So one voice cries out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We're going to see that this is going to be fulfilled in our gospel lesson by none other than John the Baptist. He is the one who is going to be sent by God to prepare the way. And back in Bible times, when a king uh, or a great uh, warrior was coming, they would actually, there are records of them, uh, smoothing out roads, you know, taking down any obstacles uh, for this king to come. I guess the closest we have to it today is when, for example, the President of the United States comes to town, right? Uh, you've got a motorcade out ahead. You, they block off all the entrances and exits to uh, the interstates if he's going down an interstate. In other words, all the obstacles are removed, and the way is made uh, clear for him to come. Now, here we're talking again about not, uh, not a President of the United States, obviously, but eventually a Savior, Christ himself, God himself, to come in Christ. So, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Remember that wilderness, that's where John the Baptist is going to be, in the wilderness. And we'll say more about that later on. Now, verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. So, again, this idea of... You, you make the, the hills and so on, and this, is, again, is figurative language, obviously. We're not going to actually have construction taking place. But the idea, again, is making the pathway straight, and even in our hearts as well, through repentance. Uh, let's see, we're at verse 5, I believe, right? And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. His, his presence. I, I think of John 1.14. The word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of God. And so in Christ, we see the glory of God being revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
Now here, if we're talking again about the second coming of Christ, the eventual return of Christ, uh, all flesh will see that. But even this return of God's people from their captivity in Babylon, the whole world saw that as well, or knew of it, I should say. They didn't watch it, but they knew of it. They knew of God coming to, to uh, restore his people and bring them out of their captivity. Now here we again, verse 6, here we go again with a voice. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? So again, who is this voice? Is this God? Are we in Isaiah 6 and we're in the, in the very presence of God, the throne of God? Or is this just a meeting of the prophets and one of the prophets is saying this? Uh, we don't know. Cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. And you get this contrast here with the things of this world and the human things that look so appealing, don't they? But they are so temporary. As the next verse says there, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And isn't that comforting also? That uh, while everything else around us is temporary, when you think about it, and uh, does not have an eternal standing, the word of the Lord stands forever. It does not change. And how fortunate for us, when you think about it, that that word of the Lord does not change. Uh, just think about it, if it did, and if God were a capricious God who was changing his mind all the time, we would have to wonder, well, gee, I wonder if what he said 2,000 years ago is still valid. Is that the way he still feels? And the, the sure and certain thing we have is that that word of the Lord will endure and does endure. Um, I also think of Isaiah 55, where we talk about the, the word of the Lord not returning to him void, not returning to him empty, but accomplishing that for which he sends it. So it's that word of the Lord that even God's people in captivity can keep and can hold on to, and it's the same for us today. It's that word of the Lord that, uh, that keeps us uh, secure. Uh, verse 9 Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Zion, Jerusalem, uh, symbolizing the church here. So again, the church is going to herald or is going to proclaim this good news, which is gospel, right? The good news of the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And again, that is fulfilled in the church today, that we are not to be timid about our proclamation, but just the opposite, you know, with, with strength, uh, proclaim. And then verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes. There's that advent again, coming with might, with his arm, with his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. 
Now, you've got to think about, if you put yourself in the place of God's people, when they are in captivity in Babylon, they're going to be wondering, what do you think they might be, let me ask, ask this as a question, even with your mask on, <laughs> what do you think might be going through their heads when they're in Babylon? They've been carted off in captivity. In fact, they're spread out. Some of them spread out in different parts of, of the Babylonian Empire at that time. What might they be wondering? What questions might they have in their mind? Will we get, will we get back to Jerusalem? Yeah, are we ever going to be able to go back? Bill? Yes. Has God, are, we, are we and God done here? Is, is, he, is he done with us? Is this, is this the end of the road? Uh, and, and so on. And notice again, this is so reassuring for them. Uh, number one, did you notice in, the, in that last uh, verse there how uh, lovingly God speaks of what he's going to do? It's going to be like a shepherd with his sheep. And, and notice there he talks about uh, that he will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. And again, this whole idea of the close, tender relationship between God and his people. So that answers that question. They, they know that he is still with them in terms of their relationship. Uh, perhaps another question going through their minds is, does God have the strength? Does God have the power, the capability of bringing us back? Because in Bible times, when you were defeated by another nation, it was thought not only was your, your army or your military uh, inferior, but your God was inferior to the gods or God of the foreign uh, uh, country, nation, that took you over. And so they're sitting there in Babylon and thinking, wow, is it true that the Babylonian gods are more powerful than our God? And here again, God answers that question. Absolutely not. He talks about his, his uh, notice there, his arms rule for him. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are a number of places where it talks about the arms of God. And whenever it's talking about that, uh, it's, a, it's a symbol or a way of speaking of God's strength and his power. So God is reassuring his people here that he is, number one, strong enough, capable enough, and secondly also, to calm their fears, that their relationship is still a strong one. He is their God, as, as we started off. And he wants his people to be comforted. And, and uh, as they wait for his deliverance, to be comforted. Okay? So that's a uh, little bit quick, uh, maybe glance through there. Any comments or questions, that will be the Old Testament lesson for next Sunday, the second Sunday in Advent. Any comments or questions on that? All right. I want to, uh, just to keep you on your toes, we're going to go to the gospel lesson next. Uh, because they're so connected and so tied together. I think we will see that connection. Uh, Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. And uh, again, this will be the gospel lesson next week. So the very beginning here of the gospel of Mark. So let's uh, start at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here Mark is beginning at the beginning, beginning of the good news or the gospel um, about Jesus Christ, and it, it's the, con the content of that gospel, of course, is Jesus Christ. And we're going to see John the Baptist here playing a big role. Uh, verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Well, that first portion right here, God is, is saying to us that although Jesus is going to be coming, there's going to be one coming before him who is going to prepare the way before him. And that first part, behold, I send my messenger, uh, is actually a quote from Malachi, Malachi 3, verse 1. But then uh, the rest of it is actually what we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And so you see the connection here with Isaiah's prophecy that that one who is going to be out in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord is going to be none other than John the Baptist, as we are going to see here. Um, and getting God's people ready for the coming of the Messiah and the ultimate deliverance that, that he will bring. Uh, by the way, uh, let's just review. Uh, what was the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus? Mary and Elizabeth, first of all, were cousins, yeah. And remember Mary, uh, when Elizabeth is pregnant, Mary comes and she is pregnant with Christ. And remember that when they meet, when those two cousins meet, uh, we, we are told the Holy Spirit enters Elizabeth and John the Baptist in that point, not yet born, leaps in her womb. And so they are, are related, uh, uh, humanly speaking, uh, as well. Uh, let's go to verse 4 then. John, that would be John the baptizing one, or John the Baptist. I always, I always try to say something other than John the Baptist, because I once had a lady come up to me after Bible class and say, was that John? Was he the first Baptist uh, that was there? I said, I said, no, not actually, but just, just call that because he's the one who baptizes uh, so much. That was his uh, ministry, well, along with proclaiming as well. Um, John appeared baptizing, notice there, in the wilderness again, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A couple of things to mention here. It's interesting that so often the prophets were out in the wilderness and it seems like the true people i gotta be careful how i say this the true faithful let's say faithful people of god um, were out in the wilderness so often as was you recall in the first exodus what happened they were in the wilderness for 40 years weren't they and they there uh, learned their dependency upon god and God provided for his people in the wilderness. And it seems like it's in the cities, in the towns, uh, especially Jerusalem, where you've got, by the time of Jesus, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so on, the people who are, are opposed to him. And yet it's the people out in the wilderness many times, it seems, who are the faithful people. And uh, you can go to Israel today, and you'll see that it's not far from Jerusalem where you have wilderness. Uh, in fact, uh, some, of us, some of us have been there uh, together, and when you are on uh, the Mount of Olives, this has always impressed me, or made a big impression on me, you don't have to go far over the top, and you're out in the wilderness. And you know, it's in that Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem at night, where Jesus certainly could have seen the approaching uh, guards to take him captive. And what a temptation, I'm sure, humanly speaking, for him to just turn around and hightail it over the top of the Mount of Olives, get out in the wilderness and, and you know, escape. But he did not. He stayed there and was faithful to the will of his father. 
And so it's again in the wilderness here where we see John the Baptist preparing people for the coming of the Lord. Notice he is doing so by a baptism of repentance. We do not equate the baptism that John is doing with the baptism that we have today, the baptism that was commissioned to us by Christ to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Uh, This was a baptism merely of repentance, first of all, and as Christians, we say repentance really has two distinct parts to it. There is, first of all, the contrition or the sorrow that we feel for our sin when we are confronted with the law and realize that, yes, I have sinned and I am a sinner. And so there is that sorrow or that contrition, we call it, for our sin. But also, very, very important, is also the faith that through Christ our sins are forgiven. That's true repentance. If you just have the first half, you end up in despair, don't you? That I'm, a, I'm a, as we say in our confession, I'm just a poor, miserable sinner. And you end, it, you end in despair there. There's, there's no hope there. But the second part also is extremely... Now, if you just have the second part, uh, that, that's not so great either, right? You, you need both sides. You need law and gospel. Because if you don't know that you're a sinner, why do you need a Savior, right? And so both of those parts are together in true repentance. Uh, you think of the disciple Judas, for example, had the first half, didn't he? He was filled with sorrow and, and took the tried to return the money and ended up hanging himself. He is so tragic, ended in despair. Peter, on the other hand, who denied even knowing Jesus three times in the courtyard that night, was given repent, uh, repentance and forgiveness. He was restored by Jesus. So Peter got both halves whereas Judas only operated with that first half and must have not thought there could be any forgiveness for what he had done, unfortunately. So this is what John is preaching. Repent, for, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, turn away from your sin. The, the, the one coming is going to be so great, I can't even stoop down to tie his, uh, his sandals. Now, um, let's go to verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And we sometimes gloss over that, but just look at how popular John the Baptist was. It wasn't just a little group of folks out there, you know, a little, little cult out there in the, in the wilderness. People were streaming to him. And, and he was preaching something that they had not heard. And he's baptizing them. And notice there um, that all, it says here, the, all the country of Judea. So that's the territory that, that Jerusalem is in. The, the sort of the, you might think of it today as a, a large county. It's the, it's the territory that it's in. And notice there, all Jerusalem. And kind of significant, he's baptizing them in the Jordan River. Of all the places, in the Jordan River. Now, think back. When did God's people have a new life, a new, uh, a new land and a new life, you might say, when many, many years earlier they crossed over, Joshua leading them, over the 
Jordan River, right? They went through the waters. Well, they went on dry ground, I should say. But they, they went through the Jordan River, didn't they? And here again, God's people, God is bringing new life to his people in the Jordan River. Uh, now, you can, uh, again, go to the Jordan River today, and it is a spot where many uh, baptisms do take place. I think we do have to be careful, though, that you're not any more baptized if you get baptized in the Jordan River. You're not any more baptized if you bring back water from the Jordan River to do a baptism here in the United States. And I'm not saying that any of this is wrong, but we just have to be careful that we don't think that, well, I got baptized in the same water that Jesus was baptized in. Well, first of all, no, there's been a lot of water goes since then uh, through there. But again, uh, we've got to be careful. It is water and the word that makes baptism baptism. It's just simple water, as Luther says. It doesn't have to be from the Jordan River. It doesn't make it any more efficacious or not. Okay? Uh, six. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. <laughs> kind of a different uh, sort of guy. Uh, we're not recommending that diet necessarily uh, for today. But there is something significant about this that uh, maybe doesn't meet the eye at first. And that is, there's another guy in the scriptures who it says in 2 Kings 1 verse 8, wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. Elijah. Elijah. Now, Malachi uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The prophet Malachi says that when the great day of the Lord comes, guess who's going to come? Elijah. Okay? So that's the prophecy back in uh, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. And guess who Jesus, in Matthew 17, I'm going to go there and read this, Matthew 17 Verses 10 through 13, guess who Jesus says Elijah is? John the Baptist. Let me read for you from Matthew 17. And I want to read here verses 10 through 13 of Matthew 17. Let me go, uh, yeah. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus could have answered because Malachi said Elijah is supposed to come first. But here's what he says. Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So this is rather significant. Some people just kind of scoff at, at you know, uh, John the Baptist's outfit out there, and I guess you can kind of make fun of it. But he is described as being clothed in the very same way that Elijah was in the Old Testament. And there is this prediction in Malachi that Elijah is going to come. When the great day of the Lord comes, Jesus says... In effect, the day of the Lord is here, and Elijah has come. He's John the Baptist. In other words, this is all being fulfilled. 
Okay? And that's the same stance that Mark is going to take here when he equates that one who is out in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord with John the Baptist. And of course, it's interesting, we won't make too much of it there, but what, hap- what ends up happening to John the Baptist? Ends up being beheaded, right? Uh, 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 executed. Uh, and notice Jesus refers to the fact there that he's go- he, Jesus, is going to suffer at their hands as well. So kind of, a, again, another prediction of what is going to be in store for Jesus. Now, going on, so that, again, is kind of interesting. Verse 7, and he, this would be again John the Baptist, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So clearly John is pointing not to himself, but to Jesus. And notice this about John. It is never, just like the Holy Spirit, he never points to himself. He always points to the one who is coming. His job was to prepare the way, prepare people's hearts for the coming of the Lord. And in effect, that's what we're doing even today in Advent. We are preparing our hearts for the coming of the Lord. Um, Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we think of the baptism that is going to come uh, at Pentecost, for example, in the name of Jesus, that people will be baptized with tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that day. And um, the, uh, Joel, Joel 2 actually talks about uh, the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days, and that will certainly uh, be taking place. Uh, let's see. That is it. Yeah, that's verse 8. Uh, so, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's see here. Oh, my. Oh, okay. My page is messed up here. Is that the end of verse 8 on yours? Okay, okay. I thought my, my page was messed up here. So, here we have this prediction of uh, John the Baptist in the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 40. He's going to come and prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the ways for him. And then we get the fulfillment of that in our gospel lesson with the coming of John the Baptist. And uh, God coming, and as we'll see in Jesus, of course, coming exactly the way Isaiah 40 speaks of him, coming tenderly to shepherd his flock, to actually give his life for the sheep, lay down his life for the sheep. Okay? All right. Any, uh, any questions on on any of that or any, any uh, comments on any of that from Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. All right, so let's finish off then with 2 Peter. Uh, and we're going to look at uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, just to set this up a little bit, it appears to us from 2 Peter that there were some people at that time who were scoffing at the idea that Christ was going to return and was going to bring judgment upon people. Um, let's just stop for a moment and think about our modern day context. Do, are, are there scoffers today when you say something like, Christ is going to return, he's going to judge between the living and the dead, and, and, and many people are going to be sent off to, as Jesus said, a lake of burning fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, 
and others are going to be taken to this never-ending paradise. Are there scoffers today when you say something like that or even anything close to that? Yes, uh, absolutely so. Um, there are, um, it, it just seems to me, and I, this is just my opinion, you may differ, but it just seems to me that there are so few people today who even think about that or consider that day, that that day is going to come. Uh, you just don't hear much about it. We preach about it. We try to preach and teach about it. But in the general public, it is so easy to focus just on the here and now, isn't it? And, and upon living our lives in the here and now, and not even think that that great day of the Lord is yet to come. It'll be a great day for all believers, a great day of sorrow, unfortunately, for all unbelievers. But Scripture makes it very clear, as we have seen in the past few weeks in our Scripture readings, that there is a day that has been set. It is known to the Father that the Son will return. He will bring with Him all who have fallen asleep, all those believers who have uh, died in the Lord, and that there will be a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. This is all taken for granted in the Scriptures and stated repeatedly. But there were apparently some people who were scoffing at that idea, and Peter addresses them. So, let's take a look, starting at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So what's the point that Peter is trying to make there in verse 8? That if we're thinking about time... And how long it's been, what's Peter's point there to, to them? With the Lord, what? No time. Don't, you know, it's, it's not though as though uh, God is, is, you know, restricted by time. And, and it only it has a little bit of time before the clock runs out. Now, again, I want to make clear that Scripture talks about a day that has been appointed. So it's not as though God is not operating with any sense of, of time that we have here. But the point is, if you're thinking that it's taken a long time, just remember, you know, God is not restricted by time or anything else for that matter, not geography or any, any other human factor. So a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, there's that word again, repentance. So this is, has always been, and it, actually we could look, the same thing is said, or very similar thing is said in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, that again God wants none to perish and all to come to everlasting life. So this tells us about the character and the desires, desire of God. It is that none should perish. All should come to eternal life. Now, if God wants all to be saved, why are not all saved? Who gets the blame for that? Does God get the blame for the fact that not all people are saved? No. We would say that the reason all people are not saved is that unfortunately... When God works through means like the Word in, our, in us, He can be rejected. He can be resisted and totally rejected. 
I say unfortunately because it would be great if, if we were that way, but when you stop and think about it, it's really not a good thing because we would be forced to believe, wouldn't we? We would be like robots. And that's not the kind of relationship that God wants with us. But it is unfortunate that we see people resisting and rejecting the gracious offer of God that their sins be forgiven and they have eternal life. And unfortunately, again, our sinful nature and we have the ability to do that when God works through means. When he comes on the last day and is not working through means anymore, but is working directly with us, there will be no resisting at, at that point. You will not be able to, to resist uh, his, his actions on that last day. And it is unfortunate, but on the other hand, when someone does, is brought to faith, and when someone does confess Christ, and their sins are forgiven. Who gets the credit for that? Does that person get the credit for that? This is a, the best decision I've ever made in my life? No, just the opposite. That, uh, in fact, uh, I recall Luther's explanation, remember, to the third article, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. So it's... It goes this way, if someone believes in Jesus Christ, confesses Christ as Savior, God gets the glory, God gets the praise and the credit for that, we might say. On the other hand, if someone fails to believe and rejects God's offer of forgiveness and everlasting life, that is on that person. That is not on God. God desires that all be saved, that none be lost. We say that's the, sometimes talk about that as the primary will of God is that all people be saved, okay? And so that's clearly said here uh, and in other places I mentioned uh, 1 Timothy uh, as well, all right? So uh, going on, verse 10, uh, uh, 10, yeah. Uh, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Boy, we've got a lot here. What does it mean, the day of the Lord? What's he referring to there? Second coming of Christ, in this case, right? Not the first coming, but the great second coming, the great day when Christ will return, uh, that again was being denied by some people apparently. What does it mean that it will come like a thief? Like a thief in the night. Yeah, unexpected, right? Usually you don't have a thief calling you up and saying, hey, you know, at 2 in the morning, I'm going to be over and, and break through your uh, basement window and uh, door and get into the house or something along those A thief relies on the, the element of surprise, right, and stealth to, to be able to do uh, what he or she wants to do. And so this is just an expression to say that it is going to come uh, at an at a unexpected time, uh, and uh, we will not be able to predict when that day is. And of course, down through history, there have been so many attempts to predict exactly the day that the Lord is going to return. So if you are uh, hearing the news and you hear of somebody on the news who says that uh, 
the Lord is going to return on uh, April 5 of 2021, what should your response be? Uh, I don't think so. Nobody knows. Only the Father knows. And in fact, we are cautioned in Scripture that it is going to come at an unexpected time. Not a time when you're expecting it's going to be, you know, next week. Um, and as I say, down through history, uh, there are some groups, um, I'll just say, the Jehovah's Witnesses are one of those that have made just an incredible number of predictions. And all of them, of course, have, have been false. There was a guy, and I was trying to remember his name, and I couldn't remember his name, but do you remember, it was about two or three years ago, there was a guy who predicted, I think it was, first of all, it was going to be in like April or May, and then he changed it, it was going to be in October of that same year, and I could not remember that guy's name. I could see his face, but I couldn't remember his name. Um, but again, I, I don't know how people fall for that. I, I really don't. Uh, it, is, it is said in Scripture repeatedly, unexpected time, but it will be coming. It will be coming. Okay. Um, now, notice there, uh, what's going to be, what does it sound like is going to be happening with creation here? It's not only going to be a, a, a great return of people, but you get this whole idea here that um, you get the idea of being burned up and dissolved, the earth and the works that are done on it exposed. So it's almost the idea of a purifying fire here that exposes. You know when you are, there, and this is done other, another place in the Bible as well, when you are purifying metal and you've got a flame there, and uh, it's called the dross is, is purified out of it, it almost sounds like that here, that the works on the earth will be exposed. So all of the, the evil things that have been done on this earth are going to be laid bare, is what that word means, or revealed on that last day. So let me ask you this. As Christians, on that last day, are we going to have every sin that we have ever committed um, exposed and laid bare on that last day? Is that, is that, we're going to have a catalog that's to be uh, the sins of Pastor Thomas. Let's open this up and, and take a look. Is that, is that going to be? No. Uh, remember that when we, through, our, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are clothed in a robe of righteousness before God. God only sees our, uh, might say, good works that are done through faith in Jesus Christ. And last week's gospel lesson, remember Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about all the good things that were done by the faithful to his brothers. Again, those good things done because they are done as a result of faith. Um, I realize that those verses... Uh, You've got to be very careful that you don't take those to be works righteousness, that you're saved because you visited the sick and fed the hungry and so on. Again, that's the result of a faith that already exists. Those are the good things that will be laid bare, and God will get the glory for those on the last day, not us. Opposite, though, without faith in Jesus Christ, there are no good works. There are good things they can do which appear good, uh, to us, Luther called that civic righteousness, but there are no truly good works in the sight of God to even, to even lay bare. Okay? Uh, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Just a couple of things there. You can see from those verses that the people were saying, because there is going to be no judgment day at all, they were denying it. Uh, that, notice there, Peter takes the... They were also then saying, so just do whatever you want. Because there, there's going to be no day of reckoning anyway, so just go out and do what you want. Peter reverses that. And verse 11 there, since all these things. So since this is all going to happen, you know, what kind of people should you be? And, and you should be living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening or earnestly desiring, anticipating that great day. Um, there are, let me just say this. There are a couple of uh, theories about the last day and what's going to happen to creation. These verses are usually cited by people who um, are called um, annihilists, I guess you would say, that the creation is going to be just completely uh, done away with, burned up, dissolved, as it says there. And there are others, because even this talks about a new heaven and a new earth, there are others who would take it more to be just a purification of the existing creation. There was not a complete destruction of it, but a renovation, we might say, a purification of it. And so you can get people on both sides of that argument. And these verses are usually cited by those who want to talk about a complete annihilation and redoing of the creation. Uh, in the end, it certainly, I guess, in the end doesn't matter, but it's kind of interesting to read these verses. They go more certainly on the side of the annihilation. I'm looking at time, we better, uh, therefore, uh, finishing up, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And what's the only way that we are without spot or blemish? Is, again, that's something we bring about? No. That's, again, what we are as a result of what God has worked in us. And a beautiful reference, actually, to uh, Ephesians 5, where it talks about Christ presenting us without any spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. And notice there, be at peace with one another. And uh, talking about the church itself being at peace peace, one with another, and with our God as well. Okay? All right. Any questions or comments as we finish out the study? All right. And again, uh, next week, these will be the lessons as we move further along in the season of Advent. And let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.